My guest today is Catherine D., a writer, journalist, and internet historian. I first came across Catherine on somebody else's podcast. I would tell you which podcast, except that I've now listened to about 10 podcast interviews with her, so I can't now remember which one it was that I listened to first. But I was very fascinated because it was clear to me she was a she is a serious thinker with a lot of very unique takes. I've now also read chunks of her Substack and even her dating advice. And I think she's kind of unique. Not too many people become known as internet historians. So she's willing to drill down into some very esoteric corners of the internet and try to understand what's going on in you know what really is a million different communities, some of which never come into contact with each other. So Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for that very flattering intro. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I always ask my guests about their early life. And, you know, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you went to school, what you wanted to be when you were younger and uh, where you are now in life. Yeah. So I've always been in front of a computer. I think that's maybe the most unique thing about me, maybe the only really unique thing about my upbringing. You know, I think there's this misconception that like only Zoomers are digital natives, but I've been, I was sat in front of a computer at like three and then I was online by like 1997. So, you know, I've been online for a long time. Like before iPad kids, there were kids who were popping from a desktop computer. And I mean, there's tons of, uh, I mean, you, you probably know this, there's tons of computer games for kids right and you think like oh like oh you just play those in the computer lab at school or like for like 40 minutes or whatever but no i mean there's there's a lot of us who uh you know we're we're doing it in excess pretty early even though it it was very expensive to get online then yeah it didn't mean that kids weren't weren't abusing it you're you're about 30 is that right yeah and so did you experience the dial-up to broadband transition? I did. So so when you were first plopped down, you maybe that was the machine connected to the internet or it was more for you to be playing games and stuff like I, that? Just, at first I played games. And then, I mean, I think my early, I, I must have been on the internet even before this, but like my first memory of like navigating the internet alone was uh, like Yahoo game and talking to people uh, like while playing checkers and you know whatever else, and I played dress up games a lot too. Those were really popular. These uh, these game these like paper dolls from Japan had a had a moment. And yeah, that was my my early uh, internet experience. But yeah, I remember like my mom would want to make a phone call and I'd, I'd be on AOL. Uh, <laughs> you know. Now, were you so like for me? I'm much older than you, so for me that I was already an adult when this transition happened, but. Did you immediately become a kid who kind of preferred to be online to playing with other kids IRL or was that something gradually that happened to you? All right, I've I've always been pretty awkward. I mean, I I remember thinking like have it, like when I got a laptop, a laptop in 2004, I think. And I remember thinking like thank god, like now I could just go to my room. I don't have to interact with other people because it was so painful. Was, I'm I mean, I'm such an awkward person. I, for a long time, I like couldn't make eye contact with people. I, I definitely can now, but it was just, I, I 
very bad at like reading social cues. So such like a welcome reprieve. I just preferred it so much more. And it wasn't that I didn't like to socialize per se. Like I did a lot of text-based role playing. I was really into MMOs, you know, I, like all, you know, all sorts of chat rooms for sure. And that, that to me was like a much more comfortable way of socializing. You know, I didn't necessarily have a lot of friends at school, but that didn't mean I didn't have friends. I, I had digital friends. When, when you were at school, was there a particular clique that you identified with? No, I was always kind of a loner. I, I struggle to fit in with groups. I like, I've never understood, uh, you know, sort of the like, and this is actually true of the internet too. Like, I'm just not like, I don't know how to blend in a group uh, digitally. I'm sort of digitally, socially awkward too. So I don't know how to signal membership. Now, back then, the, the term autism was not much used. Like, first of all, do you think you're slightly on the spectrum? And when, when did you, if so, when did you start thinking that? So there is a moment. And I mean, so the short answer is I used to, and then I, I figured I don't really think that's, that's the case, but there was a moment and I can't remember when it might've been like around 2007 when autism started to become trendy, right? You, so you had that movie Adam come out, which was a rom-com about an autistic man. Then like uh, a couple of years later, the big bang theory came out and it, it, we had sort of this autism moment and it was interesting because it, it collided with like, uh, you know, the anti-vax movement peaking and all of these mothers saying that vaccines had given their kids autism. But at the same time, of sort of being like uh, glorified in the media. So were sociopaths. It was like a very weird, uh, weird moment in entertainment. And when that happened, I was like, oh, maybe that's me. But, you know, I don't I don't really think that's I don't think that's true because I, I've, I've learned to read people. I think what it is, is that I was I, I didn't socialize enough when I was very young. And I think I think my at least one of my parents, I won't say which one, is is on the spectrum. And I when I was modeling that behavior, I think like like I think I'm so I'm, I think I'm a functioning person who was raised by autists, and that sort of like colored my that plus the heavy you know computer use uh, kind of put me <laughs> put me at a disadvantage. That's super interesting. I mean, among sort of brainy types like in science, there there are some. I think real autists, but then there are also people who I think are just for some reason started out a little bit socially awkward. And then they, they because they have these super rational brains, they sort of dissected social customs like in an analytical way and then, and then somehow managed to blend in. And it, that sounds a little bit like your story. Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, I think I, I really do think we underprice like social awkwardness married with the fact that like a lot of people aren't like born into communities in the same way. Like, you know, I, I didn't have a religious community necessarily or a cultural community. It was sort of like we would live in these like gated communities where we wouldn't, uh, you know, these gated neighborhoods where we wouldn't like know our neighbors. And, you know, my parents were super social. So that, I mean, it's, it, if you grow up kind of isolated, it sort of looks like autism, but it's really just like you need to learn some things from other people. And if there's no other people, then it, you learn it from entertainment. And that's so I'm very that's not good. <laughs> now, when you were growing up, would you have considered yourself to be a kind of intellectual kid or a gifted kid in terms of how you did in school? No, I, I, I was awful in school. I, I liked English a lot. I mean, I was terrible at math. I 
my mom likes to frame it that I like graduated high school early, but which is kind of true. But I, I mean, I really dropped out. So and then and then for I did go to college, but I went I got a BSA, which another thing my mom doesn't like that I say it's basically a vocational school. Like I didn't take any math or philosophy classes. I certainly haven't seen the inside of a science classroom since I don't know I was like eleven. Like it's. <laughs> So yeah, my grades were, they weren't abysmal and I was never like a, a failing student, but I was like very average. Yeah. So when I, when I listen to you, I mean, I'm someone who knows a lot about psychometrics and measurement of intelligence and stuff like this. It, it seems clear to me, you have a super high verbal IQ. In other words, you, you're able to make a lot of very clear distinctions between, you know, very fine grained concepts. And so I don't know if you ever tested on for your verbal uh, ability, but it seems quite high to me. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've taken IQ tests before, but yeah, I, I don't know. I've never, I, 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 I mean, I don't really like school, which is part of it. I, I, at some point I was, I remember like telling a school counselor, he, he was asked why some of my grades were so bad. I was like, oh, I'm playing like, I was playing an MMO all the time. <laughs> I, I must've been like the, I must've been the canary in the coal mine because like, I bet like three years later, he he saw a lot of that. It must have been like one of the first first kids to come in <laughs> with that. By the way, there's a whole category of very smart kids who don't do well in school. I mean, not every kid likes the structured learning environment. You know, they that's not it's not because they're not bright. It's just because they don't like it or they have more interesting things to do outside of class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know my my middle sister uh, was sort of in a similar, but she's very she's very intelligent, but like. She just, she didn't do well in school until she, she went, she ended up going to like a special, not like special ed, but a school that was sort of structured for kids who didn't learn in a traditional way. And then she really flourished. And I sometimes wonder like how my life would have gone differently if I hadn't uh, gone to the schools that I went to. Yeah. You sound like a kid, like maybe if they had let you go to Mont- Montessori or something, you would have loved it. Yeah, maybe. So in another interview, I heard you say you went to NYU and that you studied film. Am I correct? Yeah, that's yep, true. So what what was that like? So you, you by the way, you grew up, where did you grow up? In Miami, is that right? Uh, in a, a suburb nearby. Right. And so what was it like? I mean, did you like New York City or were you still mostly online while New York City was going on around you? No, I, well, I was very online, but I, I that was the first time I, I was more integrated in the world. I, you know, I'm thankful for my experience. I don't know if I loved it though. I was sort of, it was a little bit traumatizing because I, so I grew up, I grew up in a community where it, it had very strange and specific like social expectations, partially because it's very artificial in South Florida is one thing. And then, you know, there's a lot of wealth. And that's that's really a bubble. And so I left sighted to that bubble. But like no, like certainly like certainly this isn't like the like the whole world can't be like this. But it's even worse in New York, right? Like the only worst place I could have gone <laughs> with Los Angeles. So it was like every everything that I feared about the world was like suddenly validated like tenfold. Um so it kind of fucked me up for a while and it took me a long time to realize that like like oh like this i just went from like bubble to bubble and like actually the world really isn't like this (laughs) but the aspects of this bubble was materialism or shallowness what what was it about like i you know it's standing the materialism that bothers me i mean that i almost doubt at this point but like 
uh, you know, like shallowness, particularly about like women's appearances. It's very unforgiving. It was very unforgiving where I grew up. And it, it's really unforgiving in certain pockets in New York, especially if you are, you know, you went to a school that's $53,000 a year. Most people are paying out of pocket, right? NYU is very stingy with scholarships, especially for uh, the art school. So you're around kids who can afford that. And you, the, it's in the entertainment industry. And you're, you're fighting, you're hustling to get into the entertainment industry and you're surrounded by people who want to be in the fashion industry. So it's, I mean, there's just, just there's no chance, right? Like it's, it's, it's again, like I said, the only worst place, uh, is LA. And I, I, I kind of think LA probably is better in some ways. At least they have better weather. I went to college in LA and, uh, but, but I went to a tiny college full of science geeks. So I had a very unusual experience. But I can see why you, you think that. You, I think you're thinking of USC or something. USC might be yeah. considered the West, West Coast version of NYU, actually. Yeah. So when you, I mean, you know, I would describe you, tell me if this is wrong. I, I would describe you now as someone who makes their living as a, as a writer. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's true. And was that something you aspired to when you were in college? Yeah, I, I kind of had a feeling I wasn't going to make it in entertainment for like a few reasons. One, my writing was a little bit too experimental and I knew I was never going to be able to like do sort of like I was never going to be able to find like my bread and butter. A lot of the people who are successful coming out of film school, like, you know, they end up doing TV or like things that are very formulaic. And I just it, that wasn't for me. And I couldn't really cut it socially either. So I was like, I didn't like I have no chance at this. I'm going to keep doing it because I love it. But there's there's just no way. But I so I, I did all these magazine internships and in my head, I was like, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to write for Vice or BuzzFeed or, you know, one of these publications. And I'm going to be, I wanted to be, it, this was, this was, this was right at the time when people were like, internet personalities were journalists. Like that was, it was that sort of like marriage. I was like, I want to be someone who's like Twitter famous and, you know, ostensibly a journalist. But that didn't, that didn't work out. Right. Like one you know, publication started shuttering. Like, Shortly after I graduated, there's like no more Exo Jane and uh, things start shuffling. And then I, I didn't stay in New York either. So it just it just didn't work out. But yeah, now now I'm actually doing exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> so an, an archetype of what you earlier aspired to be, would, would Taylor Lorenz be somebody like that? Or who, who would be an example of somebody who reached that? Yeah, you know, I, I yeah, she's sort of like that, like i certainly not like the drug use, but somebody like Kat Marnell, like who's just sort of a personality, right? But who also writes a lot or, you know, is known for the writing or employed for the writing. And there's, I mean, there's dozens of, of more than dozens, there's hundreds of people like this, now myself included, where it's like, I'm a default friend, but I'm all, but really like I make my money as a journalist. Now, can I, I, this is a part of the economy that I just don't understand because, okay, so first of all, it's, it's really tough to make uh, money as a writer or a journalist these days, right? And, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think you've said like, like at various times, like uh, there is a kind of sub stack, I don't want to say grift, there's a sub stack hustle or grind that you kind of have to put effort into. Could you describe how that works? I mean, you have to have a cult of personality. You know, there's there's tons of people who are better writers than I am, who are, you know, who work harder, who are more skilled in, you know, various ways. 
Uh, but I think the one advantage I have over them is that I'm, I have a brand and I, I don't think that makes like, that doesn't mean I'm, you know, superior to them anyway, but that's probably why it's easier for me to make money because there's a perspective and almost like a glint, like a parasocial thing or like a glimpse into my life that people are purchasing probably more than the work even. Right. You know, like if a really, um, sort of like transparent example of this is like all of these right wing political commenters are basically saying variations on the same thing. There are some who are like very intelligent and who have, you know, well studied and have unique perspectives. But for the most part, they're regurgitating the same sort of hot topic of the day. And yet some succeed and some don't. And part of that is just some of them are, are branded better. And it makes their, you know, their contribution to the culture war and, you know, their stream and their Substack and their, their Twitter more valuable. And there's a lot of shame around like being honest about that and also about courting an audience. And you're, you're supposed to deny that you, you're doing. That. Um, but it's, I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely necessary because otherwise nobody's going to pay attention to you. You, you kind of do have to be like an attention whore a little bit. Now, I, I stumbled upon you. I, th- I think I'm not necessarily in your target audience. And so I just stumbled upon you because I, I heard you interviewed on someone else's podcast and found you very interesting. How would you describe your brand or public persona? I'm I'm sort of in a unique situation because I'm I'm not politicized necessarily. I think I probably skew more right than left, you know, and then more center than right. But I'm like vaguely in sort of the right wing sphere. So that's but I'm not really right, you know. My content really isn't right wing. That's like one differentiator. I'm a like a frank woman. People people tend to like that, and I think I talk about topics that like appeal to young men but from a female perspective and as though i'm writing to women right so those are all things that i think sort of sort of help and you know i've been to talking of the sort of the meta conversation about the internet in the midst of the, the culture war is also very helpful right because like, it allows me to to participate in the same conversations everyone else is and what generates clicks but then i have my own sort of spin on it so you know like one person might always weigh in on the like romantic or social elements of something. Another person, maybe their beat is like trans people or, or something. And then for me, it's like I could take all of those things and say, okay, but my, the, the thing I'm adding is like, well, how does the internet come into this? What's the, uh, how does this have to relate to internet culture? Yeah, I have to say, in, in preparing a list of topics for you, I was a little bit, there were so many things that we could talk about that. I- was a little bit at a loss to narrow it down because you're you're definitely you have extremely wide interests. What what is the male female ratio of your Substack subscribers? I think it's mostly men. Uh, I don't know what the the split is, but I I would pro- it's probably it's majority male. And can you can someone make a living like uh, from Substack subscribers? Like how many people do you think are are able to make a living just from their Substack. Probably very few. I would imagine like more than you you think, but I don't think it's that easy. I, there, I mean, there are sort of like less glamorous ways to do it. There's like people who have uh, like local news or like focus on topics that you wouldn't like necessarily associate with Substack who do well. There's all these niches that I think people like kind of forget about. But like doing sort of like culture war stuff, I think. Uh, you know, probably a few hundred, maybe a thousand. 
Yeah, I, I, I know a guy. Do you know a guy called Richard Hanania? Oh, yeah, I just, I just met him. Oh, in, in, in real life? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, so I know Richard and I was asking him like, oh, like, and I, he seems pretty successful. I think a lot of people know who he is now and uh, he has a sub stack. I was asking him like, so, you know, does that pay the bills? And he's like, he's, he started laughing and said, no, no, I, <laughs> I have to draw a salary from the, he, he works for a, he created his own not-for-profit and he draws a salary from that. But uh, he, I don't think he's, at that time, he, I don't think he could make it off his sub stack. Yeah. I mean, he also, ha- he also has a family. Right. And he, I, I, I think he lives in a sort of expensive area. So maybe, but you know, like maybe if he was a single man and lived in like Kentucky or something, I, I would, I would imagine that he would make enough. That's true. That's true. I think, well, he lives in, in Los Angeles, so it's probably not true. Right. I, I don't know how much of his, his, I, I, I met him at a conference. I don't know how much of his life story is. I, I don't even follow him on Twitter. Actually, we just spoke at this conference randomly and I kind of recognized him from Twitter. <laughs> I don't, I don't know anything about his content, but yeah, I, that from what he shared at this event, I was, you know, there's no, there's like a lot of jobs won't pay the bills there. Right. Especially with, with kids. Yeah. I mean, it's never been easy to be a cultural commentator or public intellectual, you know, unless you got the job as the, you know, New York times culture commentator or something, you know, wouldn't that be at least historically be that easy to support yourself? Yeah. So, well, I'm, I, I, I hope I didn't drill too deeply into your personal life, but I, I thought, I, I always feel like listeners can get more out of it if they understand the person a little bit more than I'm interviewing. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally, I'm, I'm an open book. Great. So I want to turn to one of the subjects that you've gone deeply into and which I think you, you wrote a very interesting piece on. The piece you wrote was called Mass Shootings and the world liberalism made. The debate over more or less gun control completely misses the horrifying heart of the matter. The modern world breeds the nihilism behind mass shootings. And so I thought that was quite an interesting take, and I I just wanted to maybe explore this phenomenon of mass shootings and mass shooters with you a little bit. Maybe, if you don't mind, you could uh, give us a slight precis of of what you said in that article. But yeah, so I mean, essentially, my my argument about mass shooters has been for for you to be able to kill that many people, you need to be sort of emotionally checked out in a way that I I, I don't think like I don't think people can really conceptualize it. Like you know where you have to be to 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 get to that. Like it's it's almost you feel so much that you can see you you're, you're numbed to to the world. It's like a level of despair that is, uh, you know, absolutely unimaginable. And you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of things about the the way we live that contribute to this. I think you know, a lot of people are at sea. There's 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 no structure anywhere, and there's no there's no way to like contrive that structure either. People deal with this by filling their time with you know bullshit, basically. Or- you know, anesthetizing themselves in other ways. Like I think in the article, the example I give is like people who go to like these yuppie exercise classes where they're just sort of like, you know, the music's really loud and they're they're exercising to, to you know a failure point or drink whole bottles of wine or they're workaholic. But I think like what motivates that, right? This sort of the emptiness that motivates that is also what motivates 
uh, mass shootings. Like all of these to me are symptoms of, of despair. So, I, I mean, I think your thesis is that there's something unique about the modern world in, in the destruction of values or, or meaning in life that, that then leads to an increase in uh, the prevalence of that, the state of mind that would allow someone to become a mass shooter. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I think the perspective I have that I've like struggled to articulate is that I think the world's too big for most people. And even though there, you know, there's, there's collateral damage with more structure, but I think the average person benefits from it. You know, like, of course, there's always going to be edge cases, but this, this world of sort of like unlimited, unlimited choices also on one hand and, and, you know, in some ways, but also like less opportunity. I think it sort of frazzles, frazzles people. And then that's to say nothing of sort of like, you know, too big and sort of like a philosophical sense. And another example I like to give is like, I, I watched over time, like my parents be like very interested in sort of like their immediate environment and then get kind of like sucked into like the news cycle. I feel like my parents, they're very intelligent people, but like they kind of have like no business caring about the news you know and like the you know 24 uh 24 7 you know news cycle and you know whatever hot topic of the day or like donald trump like they're much the they're much more grounded interesting people when it's like local gossip or like hobbies that kind of like are contained in a certain way and it it, it seems like a huge leap right <laughs> like from getting rid of those kind of guardrails to like someone going and committing a mass shooting but i really do think like just the vastness breaks people. So, I mean, one argument you could make is that, okay, maybe on av- maybe, maybe there are aspects of organized religion or some kind of more restrictive uh, social structure that you don't like, but on average, it's actually better for this kind of average person because the average person is, would otherwise be directionless. And by having them go to church and receive some kind of, ethical instruction or moral instruction and community that, you know, you, you're able to prevent them from going off the rails like these shooters. Is that, is your thesis beyond that or yeah, go ahead. I mean, and it's partially that I, I I think like a lot of it, it's not just, just shootings, but I I think there's like a number of sort of like social ills that can be prevented with, with more, you know, more restrictions. So if you, if you, I, I always think in terms of these like distributions of people, right? So the shooters are this sort of extreme tale where someone really goes and does something like that. But I think maybe your perspective is that the internet allows you to see a little bit into the minds or the psyches of people who maybe they're not as disturbed as Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook shooter or or someone else who would do that. But, but clearly there's something wrong and you know, the fact that you're connected to them by the internet lets you actually see that there are lots of people like this. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a huge, that's a huge part of it. And I, I think of sort of like this despair is like more of a spectrum. You're right. Like Adam Lanza would be the far end of the spectrum, but there's other things also that were not really like, you don't have to d- like dive deep into like some weird internet subculture and and also not everyone who who has weird beliefs or is in a weird community is necessarily in this position 
But you know, for the most part, I think there's there's little cracks everywhere and that we don't really put to put together as part of a bigger problem. I, I, I think of us all sort of like, like, you know, are you using this uh, metaphor of being like lost at sea? I think a lot of people are just kind of like, in, you know, in the ocean drowning. So there's nowhere to swim to. So let me, let me dispose of a couple of points that uh, people might bring up, which I, I think are not that central to your thesis. So in the, in the title after the colon, you know, you say the debate over more or less gun control misses the point. Now, I think most reasonable people would say like, okay, the fact that you have disturbed people and that's the issue, but the fact that they can easily get guns does probably make it easier for them to co- become mass shooters. And I think you're not taking a position really on gun control itself. You're just saying that the real issue is the the number of disturbed people around. Right. I, you know, and I, I don't feel like qualified to, to comment on that. Yeah, necessarily. But it's, it, I, you know, people would find other outlets. Yes, it would, it, you know, maybe it would be less destructive. I don't, you know, I don't know. Right. But it, it's not going to, it's not going to fix the underlying issue. And that, to me, it's, that's sort of the more important, the more important thing. Like, why are we such a, you know, depressed nation? Right. And the other thing I want to dispose of is just to take a, an example close to home for me at, at my university, Michigan State, we had a mass shooting recently, which was, you know, really horrifying. But the person who committed that was clearly schizophrenic, I think. I mean, the, the things he had written and the way he was behaving, I think it was a classic case of like, you know, some, some kind of, uh, what's the right way to say it? Like, not just like, depression or you know extremist thinking but just just more kind of classic mental illness and and i think that's maybe not so much what you're focused on right because the thing that surprised me about your coverage of lanza was i didn't know that much about him but i think you or someone else had uncovered some youtube videos he had made while he was still in high school and the guy sounds you know he's obviously depressed or there's something wrong with him but clearly he's quite cogent he's not he's not a schizophrenic as far as i can tell um, right. Uh, you know, what was weird ahead. is like he he's esoteric, but he it's not word salad. And I, I found it upsetting that like some people be like, oh, this is clearly like schizophrenic rambling. Well, not I mean, not at all. He's just like strange. You know, it's that's it's a very different thing. <laughs> yeah, that was a distinction I was trying to make because I think and I could be wrong because I, I don't know that much about the guy who did it at Michigan State. But I think he was more word salad schizophrenic. And whereas you know, you can read like thousands of words by the Unabomber, who, after all, was a world-class mathematician at one time, and the stuff hangs together. It's actually eminently logical. And the Adam Lanza stuff that I listened to, he's actually quite cogent too. Like you might disagree with, every, you know, many of the things he says, but he, he's actually cogent. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, with, I, it's sort of maybe like my regret saying this, but like I don't think he's evil either. Like I think like we. There's this just like real impulse to sort of label things. You know, I don't and like apps, you know, I certainly don't endorse and I absolutely condemn what he did. And I think it's a, you know, one of the greatest tragedies in American history. But he, he had a, just his worldview wasn't compatible with what most of us accept. I don't, I don't think that's, that's evil. Like he wasn't coming from a place of malice. He was just, he was coming from this very bizarre place of isolation. And I, I, you know, we have no way of knowing, but I think maybe he thought he was, you know, 
a martyr or was doing something good. So let's let's uh, break this down a little bit because I think most listeners maybe are not that familiar with uh, exactly what happened at Sandy Hook. So s- correct me if I'm wrong. So Sandy Hook was a milestone because it was maybe the first time that someone actually shot a bunch of small kids, right? Was that that was unique at that moment in time, or am I wrong about that? No, I I, I think I think you're right, and it was like the highest uh, death toll, too. Right. And so this guy shot his mother who, with whom he lived, I think. And he was yes. r- roughly like high school age, right? Or a little bit older. He was 21, I think. Yeah. So he was a young man. He shot his mother. And then he went to, and I guess it was an elementary school and shot a bunch of teachers and children. And I, you know, I just knew about this superficially by just watching the news or reading, you know, maybe one article about it in the New York times. And when I, heard you talking about it, I was amazed that there's a much more complicated backstory behind this guy. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about Adam Lanza. Yeah. So he was, he was in- incredibly isolated. He, he would go weeks without interacting with anyone in person. Um, he spent a lot of time in the dark online. His only exercise was playing Dance Dance Revolution. And that, you know, that was, I, I think that was the only time he really left his house. He was anorexic. He was he wasn't, you know, he obviously wasn't completely mentally sound because he had like, you know, serious issues, like sensory issues, like certain clothes and certain foods were like very, definitely sounds. He had, a, what is it called? Like misophonia, I think it's called. Like when you're uh, like very sensitive. That's actually something I've struggled with. And I've found that like a court, like it's been more anxious. My sounds like really unsettle me. So I, I wonder if it was also an anxiety thing for him. And he had this like very detached worldview. He, he basically like, he started off thinking like that he started off as like an anarcho primitivist. Like he went from like libertarian to anarcho primitivist, sort of trying to like uncover this feral self where like, you know, maybe if we, you know, get rid of the shackles of, of society and civilization, we'll find our true selves and we'll be liberated. It's like a very common, you know, sort of thing for kids that age to adult men to, you know, to believe it's sort of a, sort of a subculture. You know, anyone who's gone through an anarchist phase has probably thought something similar, but then he started thinking like, you know, it's, it's more like he went from that to thinking like, okay, so it's not, it's not just civilizations even deeper than like all values are, are, are what's oppressive. And eventually it's this place where he's like, well, you know, what are some of the main vectors of values? You know, traditional family structures is one, cultural products are another. He's against all these things. But school, like school is where he really had the real bone to pick. School is where kids are indoctrinated. He had this like heartbreaking monologue on like where it starts it off from saying like he hasn't been hugged in years, hasn't experienced human touch in years. And he sort of ends this monologue with like, well, school was to him. He rationalizes by saying it's because he's, you know, his personhood was taken away. He also dabbled in this uh, school of thought called Ethelism, which is life backwards. It's sort of an offshoot of antinatalism. And I, I think I've misrepresented them a little bit. And, I, you know, I don't want to pass judgment on this, this community at all. But if I'm understanding them correctly, I think they think that sentience is oppressive like no one no one consents to be born and so 
life in itself is sort of an imposition. They're not necessarily advocating for people to kill others or kill themselves. Like they definitely aren't advocating for people to kill others. They also aren't advocating for people to kill themselves, though I've seen a lot of people who subscribe to the school of thought say like they empathize with people who might choose to. So, uh, you know, not that I was recently explained to me, it's, it's not that life is suffering, but that existence is always worse than non-existence. So these are kind of all these things that are influencing him, right? And he's already in this very dark place. And when, you know, before he, before he commits the atrocity at, at Sandy Hook, you know, he's, he got into this like terrible, like online fight with someone who had been harassing him under his YouTube videos. And I think like one of the last things he posted was you know, the culturalists have won. And he did, he did this all under the name cultural Philistine very anti-culture i don't know if i've rambled that explanation but no, that was it was good but what what are the culturalists who are the culturalists the culturalists to him would be like anyone who was like pro you know not just pro-civilization but just sort of like pro life as we know it i see you know i i saw online someone asked you whether you had seen the first season of the tv show true detective oh and i get that I, question all the time yeah, you know why? Because it, first of all, it's one of the many people think it's some of the best television ever made. One of the characters, the main character, is played by Matthew McConaughey, who's a detective with a very dark kind of view of uh, human nature and life. And the philosophical name for this philosophy is called pessimism. And the idea is that man is himself is a kind of abomination that. In the natural world, the animals, you know, they're more or less happy, but because we've achieved sentience, we're kind of like a monstrosity and it's actually, life is actually all suffering. And the rational thing to do would just be to end your life. Oh. I'm not doing a good job of explaining it, but it's very similar to the way you describe uh, Lanza's perspective and the character uh, played by McConaughey, you know, he, he, this is his philosophy. It's very powerfully done in, in, in the show. In fact, if you go on YouTube and you just type in true detective McConaughey, you'll, you'll hear some amazing monologues by him, you know, in character, like in riding in the squad, riding in the car with his partner, or, you know, when he's talking to some other detectives, he's just elaborating. I think that worldview that you just described. Maybe I should watch it. Well, you, you are the only person I think who, uh, successfully getting me to, to watch the show. Well, you don't have to watch a show, but you, you know, if you just go on YouTube, you can watch five or 10 minutes of the best of McConaughey's character where he's elaborating on the, the what's called pessimism in, in philosophy, which is, is not a crazy thing. And the, the idea is just like, yeah, all the other brains on the planet are not really self-aware sentient beings. We are. And because of it, we suffer enormously. We know from early in childhood that we're going to die and that our brains are separate from nature because we're aware of ourselves and we're clearly separate from the rest of the natural world. And so some philosophers feel like, wow, this is what a monstrous, what a terrible fate to be forced to live that existence. And someone like Lanza might have really felt that acutely. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. So did, did Lanza write a manifesto or is it his YouTube recordings that people are piecing together his worldview from? He so he wrote a lot. He posted prolifically on different forums, particularly like one that was like a Columbine role playing game. Wow, he, a role playing game. Yeah, like try um, to maximize your kill count or something. Or I say maybe 
the forum is no longer in existence, but yep. a lot of the posts people pull from are like like on the off topic section. There's like mm-hmm. AIM transcripts. He wrote like very strange essays. There's like a college essay he wrote defending maybe not defending, but like rationalizing pedophilia. I mean, there's just there's there's a lot of stuff out there. I see. I think I think I found the YouTube videos through you through I think either you or some interview had done. So I started listening to them and it was, yeah, it's very spooky stuff. It's really, I mean, he, they, I, I think that the spookiest part about it is like, he really doesn't sound that different than any other kind of like depressed uh, young man. Right. Like I, like I, for me that like the scariest part is like, I know this guy, like I've met this guy, you know, dozens of times. I went to high school with guys like this and you see them there a dime a dozen. Like that's sort of the scary part. Yeah, in a way, the Columbine guys were just kind of, you know, weirdos that were picked on by the jocks who, you know, sort of manned yeah, no, up. No, they were the bullies. Oh, they were the, yeah, see, yeah. this is the part that I guess maybe uh, the, the earlier description of, of what they were like was wrong. And it turns out they were actually bullies, not bullied. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Eric Harris was a psychopath and Dylan Klebold was sort of like his his patsy. Right. Maybe not a psychopath, but also like disturbed. And I mean, obviously, right. <laughs> Disturbing his own way. I, I mean, I think you probably know this, but like these strong personalities, like psychopaths and narcissists tend to attract like borderline uh, or like otherwise like codependent personality type. So when they, they meet, I mean, that's a huge, that's a, that's a tinderbox. I see. But I think, I think the point you want to make is that. There are a lot of people who, in, at least in what they express or in their psychological state, they may be not that different from Lanza or the Columbine guys. It's just that they don't go on a killing spree. Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's there's a lot of people who who think these these whole subcultures sort of built around these ideas that they they don't they don't end in violence. I mean. Again, I really don't think people like appreciate like what it takes. Like, even if you are using a gun to like fire it at other people, you either need to be very brave, right? You know, or and again, like not brave in sort of like a, a, a good way, right? But like, you know, be very evil, I guess. Or you have to be like really, really numb. You have to feel absolutely nothing. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I- I mean, having, I grew up in the Midwest and so I, I, I've been a hunt, I've hunted with guns since I was a kid and being a guy and, you know, all guys are, they grow up playing soldier and watching war movies and stuff like that. It's like, I don't know, in a way, like we're conditioned that the idea that, oh, if necessary, I could put my gun in another person and, and, you know, take his head off. Sure. But and, I like think of how much trauma, like, so, like soldiers who've been in combat has. Right. Like it does, you know, it, it's, it's hard for them. It's not, you, you know what I mean? And it's, it's one thing to be like shooting deer or goose or, or whatever. Right. It's another, or even like a dog, but it's another, it's another entirely to like to shoot children or your peers. I, it, I mean, yeah. It's, I agree with, I agree with you, but you know, <laughs> when most guys are watching like Band of Brothers. <laughs> or uh, Saving Private Ryan, or playing, you know, what first-person shooter game, they are imagining themselves as the guy shooting another person. <laughs> so so in a way, it's it's actually quite familiar to them, even though, yes, the, obviously, there's a huge activation barrier. 
It's it's simulated. I mean, like, here's a sort of like morbid counterexample. Like, I could, you know, I think a lot of people could like imagine themselves committing suicide, right? I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I'm not depressed, but like, I certainly don't think I would like, even if I was, I think I, I could not will myself to jump off a building, even if I thought it was my only option. Like, that is a whole other level. Like, I, I, I could watch a movie where someone else does it. I could probably watch footage of someone doing it for real. I could picture it in my mind, but I can't do it because that's so much like that's so much different. And I, but I think that's true of, of killing others, too. I mean, people people picking out. Right. And it, there's there's more benign. I should have used like sex or something as an example. That's like less crazy. But uh, I mean, that might be a pretty good one. Yeah. Well, in any case, I, I agree with you that there's something very unusual about these people that they decide to actually kill another person and you know uh, kill many people i wanted to mention elliot rogers who was a student i think at uc santa barbara and went on a killing spree i think he was i think he only killed well maybe he killed his roommates then but then after that he was mainly killing women uh co-eds and this guy's manifesto has become you know very very famous in certain I don't know, maybe the right term is incel circles or, or, or like disgruntled men circles because he clearly was mad because he couldn't basically couldn't have a girlfriend. And then that caused him to go on the killing spree. Are, are you familiar with Elliot Rogers? Yeah, I am. I, I remember when it happened too. It was like back when like Reddit was still kind of edgy. <laughs> yeah. What I love about <laughs> you is you have this very, very nuanced chronology of what was what was in and what was out, what was up and what was down at a, on a very nuanced, like, you know, on a one year window in the history of the Internet, which to me, I, I did. I don't have any recollection of exactly what Reddit was like in 2013 or something like that. Uh, well, I mean, for me, I'll say, you know, this is like a part of my my lore. I, I met my first husband on Reddit. So it was also like, I, you know, I was I was hanging out there. <laughs> Wow, you met your husband on Reddit. I, 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 we should have gone over that in your, in your IRL, the IRL part of the interview. Let me, let me come back to that in a second. The, the part about Elliot Rogers I found kind of amazing is that, yeah, I mean, I, I read about it on the news, and then like immediately you could just with one or two clicks and a search, you could find the guy's manifesto. I think right away, like basically when the killings happened. And if you read, for me, when, when I read through his manifesto, I thought, this really reminds me of American Psycho. Do, do you know the novel by Brett Easton Ellis, American Psycho? Or the mid Yeah. Yeah, yeah because, because this guy not only was like talking about his anger at women or this or that, and his anger at his own social situation, but then he was also commenting on like, you know, luxury brands and all kinds of, you know, it really, it really reminded me of American Psycho. But I think he's become like a key figure in this worldview where, okay, women have all the options. If you're not a top 10% guy, you can't find a girl on the dating apps. And the top guys are sleeping with lots and lots of women, you know, hypergamy. And there's this, and and maybe this is actually a true description of what dating is like for young people now. I I don't know because I'm too old. But in any case, many people imagine that that's, the reality and Elliot Rogers was so mad about it that he went out and killed a bunch of people. Is that I fair? Think, I mean, I, sort of. I mean, I I think he there's other things sort of afoot with him. I mean, because he, he 
I, I think he, he had a persecution complex of some kind. But I, I think like if we accept him at his word, that's a that's an accurate description. I see. I mean, at least that's what I, I haven't looked at his manifesto since, you know, whatever, whenever it happened, like 2013 or 2014. But that's my recollection. And then now online, I, I, I you know, not consistently, but I, I, I think I often see people referring to Elliot Rogers and in, in somehow as like the, the incel who grabbed a gun and tried to get even. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like he he gets called St. Elliot sort of in this irreverent way, you know, in certain like male dominated spaces. But just just unpack that. So St. Elliot, because he's a revered figure, because he fought back against this terribly the system that's terribly unfair to average men. Is that is that what St. Elliot means? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for, for most people who say something like that, it's sort of irreverent and you know, like ironic, but. I, I think there, there is a minority of like black pilled incels, the like very cynical incels who thinks that you know there's there's no hope, but you know it, it never began. That all they should do is like lay down and rot. Who do say that sincerely? Like I've 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 met at least one who like really believes that. But I think most people who are using that kind of language, they might believe the the worldview and the theory, but they don't they don't actually like deify Elliot Roger in any way. Right. You you could be sort of somewhat blackpilled about the dating situation for average men in the world of dating apps, right? And you know, obviously you don't doesn't make you an Elliot Rogers, but at least you you sort of understand where he's coming from. Right. And I mean, from a woman's perspective, like do you think that that sort of black male, blackpilled perspective on dating is it accurate at all you know i don't know i my i i oscillate sometimes i feel like it's a a buyer's market uh other times Wait, who's I the think buyer the w- women are the buyers the 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 men right like sometimes i think it's you know men's market I, mean, I, I think it's well one i think it's geographic i think it has a lot to do with your age class is like a big part of it i think class is really huge like very wealthy men don't have the same experience as like working class or middle class men. I think there's different. I I I don't think it, there's one story here. I think there's like multiple realities that kind of bump up against each other. I you know there's there's certainly like women who have no options. Uh, there there's all I think there's there's all sorts of stuff going on, and it can be really hard to make sense of because everyone everyone's cynicism is is right. I think, <laughs> yeah. but they're all you know they're all cynical for different reasons. I, I definitely agree with you that there there are many different stories, like you know the the story of a thirty something career woman who's trying to you know settle down with a high quality guy. I mean that might be extremely hard for them. I think the incel males are bitter because if you were just the average guy in nineteen seventy, you would kind of organically pair up with an average girl. But then once I invent all this technology that lets the average girl, you know, at least one, you know, maybe once every two weeks hook up with a really hot guy. And then she does isn't necessarily going to then be happy pairing off with the average guy. The average guys really do lose out. But I'm not even sure. Yeah. That's fair. Like, is that even true? Like that That's a story. I think that it's, it, it's sometimes it, it's confusing to me because like on the one hand. I mean, I've even experienced this myself where like, 
I've preferred men who like like are in some ways like you know quote unquote like worse than other options I have like you know and like preferring the man who's like maybe like a little bit less attractive physically but there's something there's like a je ne sais quoi there that like you know I I don't I don't even understand I just like that guy better right and like my other option maybe is like you know, a, t- a tall guy with like a nice job, but there's just something emotional or or like sexual even that like isn't there. But you know, on the it, and then I've also you know I've also seen like I have friends who are like perfectly fine who have never who are you know in into their thirties are virgins and they thought that for lack of trying. Um, these are these are men you're talking about though, not men. Women. I I had yeah. a couple of women friend in that what friends in that situation. I have male friends who I think are like kind of like despicable in a lot of ways who like slay with girls. I like I, I can't make sense of it because I've seen like every sort of version of this story play out. I've seen the I've seen the Chad who is going through him in like sock. I've seen I've also seen like a five foot six, uh, you know, startup founder, like startup and scare quotes who's who's sleeping with models all the time. And it's just like you don't have any money. You know, you're not liquid. You, you're a weirdo like uh, you live in san francisco like what the hell is going on so it, i've seen like every version so i don't i don't i don't want to invalidate anyone's experience but also like i don't think i don't think there's a universal i think there's so many different factors i think there could yeah. be like three different worlds in one city even yeah I, I i i think you're right that all of these examples you gave are for real like there are guys who may be just at first glance or superficial inspection on a dating app would not be high value in the marketplace, but somehow there's something about them that lets them still be successful. But on average, like the average guy who doesn't, isn't evaluated very highly, you know, on a dating app, like most of those guys are not, you know, as successful as they'd like to be. Right. I mean, like, I think statistically this, like, bears out right like the, you know we're in a sex recession and it's driven by young men so i mean like that it, ha- it has that has to be like mostly true but i've seen like so many deviations like i i wish there i wish when like those statistics get talked about that they're like you know like where do these guys live what kind of jobs do they have like who you know who's filling out these surveys I, there's there's so many components of it because i've been so i mean i asked i i asked my like partner like recently i was about like you know, we, like I said, like we have friends who are like these, like perfectly nice guys, fine jobs that, you know, they're not broke or anything. They're respectful. They're okay looking, good looking in some cases. No, like just cannot get a girlfriend. Can't make it past a, you know, a second date. Can't get a first date. But then it's like, we also know like, you know, complete just degenerates, like sleep on a mattress and look like homeless people even who like just are breaking hearts. And we like, I'm like, what? What drives this is, you know, the, it keep, the answer came down to like charm. Like some people are charming. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. I, I interviewed, do you know a guy called Jeffrey Miller? Yes, I do. Yeah, he's an Evo psych professor. And yeah, I mean, some guys, it may not be that they're physically attractive, but they, they just have the right personality or the, the ability. I to, mean, think, think about this way, like Yudkowsky seems to be doing fine with the ladies. That I mean, like you would, like I, like ordinarily you would have like if if the if insults are are right about you like sort of universally correct like you know be real like no offense to him, oh, but 
you know, <laughs> Yudkowsky A is very intelligent and B, like I, you know, uh, apologies, Elliot, sir, but really his superpower is being the founder of a cult. And so I'm not surprised he does well with the ladies, especially in the cult. But if you took a guy who looked like Elliot, sir, tuned down his IQ from 160 to 100, and therefore he wasn't able to be a cult leader, <laughs> I think that guy probably wouldn't do so well with the ladies. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I think there's like so many. Well, first of all, I don't think his IQ is one. I, I don't actually, I don't want to be on the record. Well, say, I, I'm, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, but he, he's, sure. he's, he is a highly intelligent guy. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, but that's why I think like all of these nuances are so important. Like, because if you asked an incel, right, like they would, like someone who subscribes to, to that, like, you know, I guess like philosophy, they'd say, well, like looks are the most important vector. Except, and like, and with the exceptions being like, you're super, super rich or like, you know, you are a famous actor or something. But I don't know if they would, if they would, you know, would count, uh, count Yudkowsky as like someone who is like off the hook necessarily. I think they, I think if you really confronted them, like, what about this guy? They would start making excuses like, oh, women aren't really into him. They're using. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I, I think being a, being kind of a data geek myself. I think most of the incels, at least the ones who are a little more on the nerdy side, they would say, I'm always speaking statistically. So there could be some dude like Yudkowsky who has some special charisma that's not, you know, wouldn't be apparent to you if you're just like swiping past him on the app. And, you know, stuff like being tall, being conventionally good looking or athletic and making a lot of money. Those are all positives. And the, these things have been like, I don't know if you remember the OkCupid guys, they were actually Harvard math majors, the founders of OkCupid. And for a while, they were like actually doing really heavy data analysis based on the data uh, on their site before they got acquired by, you know, the match group. But they published lots and lots of stuff about like, okay, how much, how much better off are you if I make you a couple, of, if I make you one inch taller? How much better off are you if I give you 10K more a year of income? How much better off are you if, you know, you're white instead of Asian or something? Some big, they, quantified all these things in really horrifying ways from using actual data on OkCupid. Okay so I, I think I think the incels, the, the learned incels would probably like actually cite pretty strong social science data to support their case. And yeah, I guess, you know, you're probably right. But yeah, I guess my only argument is I feel like there's uh there's there's more to it and dating apps like it, right? And sort of make things make things worse. That's probably where we agree the most. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying is like in 1970, you know, or whatever, even when I was dating in the 80s and 90s, there are no dating apps. It was all you had to go to the bar and or the party and, you know, meet the lady face to face. And it was just a totally different situation. Actually, it doesn't you didn't get flattened. I mean, you had other issues like you had to schlep all around town just to, you know, just to just to get into the game. But it, you weren't flattened into a two dimensional represent, representation on somebody's phone. Yeah, it, you know, people, and that's probably why, like, you know, people at certain colleges or probably still high schoolers are uh, are a little bit better off, I would imagine. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope kids who are in high school and college are still doing plenty of organic, you know, meeting of people of the, well, I was about to say opposite sex, but I shouldn't say that, people of the <laughs> w whatever gender they want to hook up with. Yeah. So maybe we can move to uh, something else you've written about. So I think you've predicted that to some extent, traditional values with respect to dating and 
mating and marriage are are going to start to come back, or maybe they've already started to come back among Zoomers. Maybe you, you could just summarize what you think about that. Yeah, no, I th- I mean, I think that we're already seeing it and we're seeing it across the political spectrum. I When I first predicted that, really what I was talking about was like media products and the way people talk about these things online and, you know, like in like the New York Times, sort of like, so my predictions were about sort of the broader conversation. But when I talk to young people and, sort of, and you know, this this may actually still be concentrated just to like, what media circulates but you see it you you obviously see it on the right you know people are attracted to catholicism and and religion in general and you know like it's i this is definitely sort of happening outside of the kind of like trendy down like downtown new york iteration which is mostly i think kind of a provocation but like when i talk to like young men on the right uh you know kids who are maybe still in college or like 23, 24, they're attracted to these these figures who promote religion. I was talking to a kid on the hard right the other day, and he was telling me, he was like, you know, white nationalism doesn't appeal to me as much as, as just, you know, a real faith in Christianity. And it seems like you have like a, a lot of friends who feel this way too. And just sort of bracket that with, I talked to a lot of these people, just sort of to make sure I have a, like a holistic view of, of the scene, right? The, speaking to them isn't, necessarily like an endorsement of them. I mean, it's definitely not an endorsement of their views. But I also see similar stuff sort of creeping in on like the center and and left. Like a lot of people who either identify as leftists or is like or are like left coded. Um they're starting to call into question things that like would have been like right wing hot topics like even two years ago. So for example, you know, there there have been like trending articles in quote unquote woke publications about how Tinder has destroyed romance and people have dating after burnout, increased skepticism of uh, birth control, not just because of the health impacts, but like, you know, the, how has it impacted our relationships and the, you know, and the, the our commitment and increased interest in settling down and having a family. And I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say is like, people talking about these things, this doesn't mean that the behaviors are changing. I have no idea. Things could be getting worse, you know, for all I know, maybe, you know, maybe they're getting better, but all, when I make these kinds of predictions, it's, it is about, you know, what people purport to believe, what they're writing about, what is going viral, what is being said on social media and, you know, what is being talked about. I didn't, yeah. I have no idea to evaluate people's behaviors. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. So I, I didn't, I, I think I misrepresented you. So I think what you said is that the new hot take will be more about trad and sex negativity and anti-porn. But you weren't necessarily predicting that was actually going to be realized in society, like in among the, the bulk of the population. Is that right? right? Yeah. And I mean, I think like, it, you know, the behaviors will be represented within like sort of an influencer, like even upper class, right? But as for like what, you know, a lot of the choices that like average people are making are... Uh, like it depends on where they live, how much money they have. It, there's all sorts of concerns that like these these uh, trends can't shift on the ground as quickly as a conversation can. Let me let me on this on this topic. Let me let me run something by you, which you know to you will seem like ancient history, but you know, just remember I'm an old guy. So in the 80s and 90s, among people who at the time were called feminists, okay, and and I should point out my wife is actually 
uh, she did a PhD in comparative literature at Berkeley. So she, she was in the, the absolute center of the, the hurricane for, you know, like, uh, postmodernism, feminism, all these, all these, you know, uh, leftist movements that were in the academy at the time. But even then, you know, if you, if you ask like, how long has this sex positivity movement been going on? It's really been going on since, you know, roughly the sixties, right? So we started having free love in the sixties didn't really reach the bulk of the American population, maybe until the seventies. And it was just sort of slowly gaining momentum over time, you know, until we, you know, we reached today, but already like at that time, when I was in grad school, there were feminists who would say things like, and, and I, I guess you could get canceled for saying this today, but this is what, you know, very avant-garde feminists of that time were saying, they were saying things like, well, you know, men and women are a little bit different and maybe women just aren't built to take. 20, 30, 40 partners in their life, whereas men are built to take it. They like it. And this whole free love thing is a big psyop on women by men because men just want more sex and they're trying to get more sex out of women. And this, you know, we're all for equal rights and equal career opportunities for women, but this free love thing is actually a psyop on the female gender. And this was actually very widely discussed in the 80s and 90s among people who were actually you know, the intellectual leaders of feminism. But now you couldn't say that because you can't say that men and women could be, quote, built differently in some way. Is that? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's that's totally true. I, th- I think where the difference is, is, like, you also have to think, like, well, what did the average person think? You know, like, and, you know, with what is being displayed in media? A lot of these conversations, like, the the turnover in, like, the more intellectual circles is, is much different. It's, uh, like... The idea of having like double digit partners, like that sort of being normalized and destigmatized. Again, it's not necessarily that people are literally doing this, but just in terms of like how people talk about it and how it's presented in the zeitgeist, that only gets normalized really in the 2010s. All media, if you look at movies, if you look at like New York Times op-eds, if you look at what books are written, the sort of like, like ethical non-monogamy and things like this are kind of fringe. And it kind of it creeps in through media, and then it accelerates and dom- like dominate in in the 2010s, and we become oversaturated and sort of bored of it. But like you know, in the in the 90s, I feel like there's a, sort of a mixed bag, right? Like on the one hand, you had all these displays of like people in their 30s, like in media, of people in their 30s dating in excess, a lot of casual sex, but there was also like a lot of message like messaging of that that was sort of moralizing it was it was kind of both and it was it was still sort of like there's still this idea of like being a slut in like the 2000s by the 2010s you have like the slut walk and like the like we, the sex positivity starts becoming more mainstream but this whole time right like you know in sitcoms where you see someone go through partners like socks again like that's <laughs> not sex positive that's just sort of like you know those new yorkers or something <laughs> Yeah, no, you're. I, I agree with what you're saying. Just to clarify what I was saying, this kind of battle between within feminism, between the quote sex positive feminists and the other feminists who maybe were quote a little, either either still kind of too trad, or they were just more realistic about the differences between men and women. You know, you could take it either way. That was an elite battle. That was a battle that was happening in the academy between elite subgroups within feminism. And then I, I'm not, I agree with your description of what was in the media at the time and that, you know, 
slut shaming and slut walks and normalization of super sex positive behavior by women, I think probably didn't become normalized until when you said, like definitely in the 21st century. That whole part of it, how how the you know, how it shifted maybe from academia into the general population. I, I'm a little unclear on it. I think you probably have more articulated views about how it happened. But I, what I was talking about in, 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 in my own experience was like within the elite, this debate happened like in the 90s. And uh, one group of those feminists today would be completely canceled for saying what they were saying in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like Gen X feminists. I mean, it's, it's interesting, like even in the circles I run in and like I'm, you know, I'm in these like 60 person big group chats. Right. And they're all like sort of like labeled like, you know, like trad feminists or something. You, know, you just get out of these things randomly if you're publishing enough. And like a lot of people in these chats are like Gen X women with like very sort of like like normative views that like they'd like not controversial at all they certainly aren't like trad right or you know for your listeners may not know what that means like traditional or like retro in any way it's just that like the the discourse market is so has like it you know accelerated to a point where it's like if you're someone who's who thinks like eh, like maybe you should have like three to five partners and then get married and you'd probably be happier and you have a very like non-committal kind of like what your mom would have told you in 1995 kind of view. Like you're suddenly like a reactionary. Yeah, that's exactly how I perceive it. And being older and having lived through all that, it's just kind of amazing how far things have shifted. I think you've written a lot about or spoken a lot about how, you know, a lot of this was mediated through Tumblr and through some channels that really I personally have no awareness of. So to me, it was always like, okay, these things originated in, you know, high academia, somehow was transmitted to the students who took courses from these academics at the universities, and then somehow got into the broader culture and Hollywood and all this stuff. But I think you have a, you have a slightly different take on this, which, which maybe you could discuss. Yeah. So my my view is that a lot of these topics get discussed on like blogs at you know including Tumblr which you know still still around but was very popular in the early 2010s and also also a little bit on Reddit and you know the the, the short version is that one you know people's first exposure to a lot of these ideas is through the internet and that you know that's like you know I don't think that's bad on its own because like kids kids get their hands on all sorts of weird ideas right but what ends up sort of normalizing and spreading these ideas is at the same time that you have more people getting online and coming into contact with things that would have been like relegated to like a grad school classroom digital media is changing rapidly and the model is basically like you know if you wanted to be a writer you'd you'd probably be freelance you get 50 bucks a pop uh, you might get more money if you generate more clicks. So you have this incentive to create clickbait. And there's no budget for people to do real reporting. And the volume of writing you have to put out, especially if you're doing this as your main profession, is like, it's insane. Like you're a human content mill. In the, in the same respect, a lot of journalists get story ideas, say, from Twitter. People were scraping platforms like Tumblr, Reddit, sometimes 4chan for story ideas. And so things would get misrepresented. So like an example of this might be like cultural appropriation, outrage, right? And so like as it as it gets broadcast to the media, like like maybe BuzzFeed writes about it and then, you know, CNN picks it up and then it suddenly everyone's talking about it. 
and it creates like these like shadow events, right? So like maybe it was, maybe it did happen for real one time once and that's what gets written about, right? And like the real event was through the lens of like someone writing about it on Tumblr. But as more people become exposed to it, they like become inspired and they're like, oh, actually this thing everyone's complaining about or celebrating seems really bad or really good. And so, and so they start copying it. So it creates like a feedback loop. And all of these things that would have stayed niche or weren't really that important or really weren't that widespread when they were originally written about catch on. And you see that happen all the time today. Like there's a lot of like cultural memes that are completely like, you know, digitally, if not specifically Twitter natives. And because journalists sort of live on Twitter and a lot of journalists don't have the resources to do uh, more robust reporting, you have like weird things just get like plopped into the mainstream conversation that would have lived and died in like, you know, a Twitter community of 700 people. And that that was happening. I, I think that's what accelerated the Great Awakening. I think what gets misrepresented and sort of misunderstood about my theory is that like people think I think that like Tumblr invented Foucault or something like, I mean, like, obviously, that's not true. But let's be real. Like, I mean, you know this. Like, if you're if you're a 19 year old kid, you probably aren't real. Like, uh, you know, unless you're majoring in philosophy or something, you're probably not encountering a lot of this literature in a classroom. But you, and even if you did, like, how is it getting into like how is it spreading so quickly, right? Like, what is this like epidemic of like <laughs> of people learning all these concepts it comes through social media because it's like bastardized and. But then, then there, then there needs some other way for for it to get amplified, and I think that in institutions, people downplay. I think even today, like all of these publications, legacy publications, are very important in shaping uh, the zeitgeist. Yeah, so this is uh, something I wanted to drill down more on because I I feel like I didn't, I've never really understood how wokeism, you know, came to be so predominant in the country, and you know, I recognize it from my days in the academy in graduate school hanging around with you know very far leftist people who were at that time very far leftist radical feminist people like that and i recognize those ideas now as being very strongly represented in woke ideas of young people today but i don't really understand the transmission mechanism my model was oh, i think there's a model a model that a lot of people have is it just it just went from academia to the students who went through academia and then into the general population. But I think you you have a more nuanced description of what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I also interviewed like a, like hundreds of people and I, I, I asked them as like, like for something with like, like, you know, I hate to call it this, but it's sort of, that's, that's sort of what's called like gender ideology. Like, where did you first encounter it? And almost nobody said in a classroom. Every, you know, not every, not literally everyone said Tumblr. Most people did, but most people like learned about what it meant to be transgender on Tumblr. And, you know, there's also like a subset of this like population where it's like they're on it so much. And this actually, this is sort of this, this my story too. I, I was so exposed to like woke language. I started internalizing it, even if it's not what I believed. And I started like self-censoring, but so did a lot of other people. And I've talked to so many people about their experience with that, where it's like you, you're scrolling so much and it's just it's mimetic online and it, you kind of absorb it by osmosis. So just so I understand, so Tumblr is an example of the transmission mechanism and maybe the dominant one, but 
it would also include Reddit and any other online forums, you know, where people discuss such things that 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 was the mechanism of the spread of the ideas. Yeah, I think for like Reddit and 4chan, it's more like right wing memes. Reddit used to be sort of and and YouTube, too. Right. Like that's sort of where a lot of uh, like right wing ideas were, you know, that's that, that Petri dish and then left, you know, left wing or left coded. Facebook, certainly Tumblr was a big one. And also like the media, you know, like mass, you know, mass media and that, you know, through the mechanisms I, I described. And, you know, part, you know, part of that is overlap of like some of the people writing these stories were probably like on Tumblr or they were college kids or they just graduated college. And it, you know, this is, it's like, shit, I need a 700 words. I have four hours to do it. I saw some weird thing on Tumblr. Let me write about it. And the the age group that absorbed, you know, all this information or these memes from, say, Tumblr, what what age group are we actually talking about here today? How old are they? I see like anywhere between like 24 and late 30s. I see. And so if you're like, if you're like 16 now and you're looking at these people who are 24 to late 30s. And you're thinking maybe they're not cool or my generation's going to be different than them. What, what are those Zoomers thinking? I think there's, there's definitely a lot of Zoom. And I, you don't have statistics on this or anything, but just from my observation, there's a lot of Zoomers that still sort of have this millennial mindset, but also like just as many who are sort of like more moderate, like critiquing like the excesses. And by moderate, I don't mean like politically moderate it, this has been like hard for me to describe but like they might be leftists but they they don't you know they're not their disposition isn't the millennial disposition i think there's also a lot of there's a lot of zoomers who are kind of contrary you know just sort of contrarian for the sake of being contrarian as you know so many <laughs> zoomers are or, or want to or young people rather want to be you know they i another subset i'd say are like sort of accelerationists like they kind of don't really believe anything they're just sort of like they're probably more in that contrarian group kind of like provocative for the sake of it and then there's the actual like right wingers so there there's a there's a range of beliefs but i don't think any of it is i don't think very much of it is going to look very similar to millennials just because young people never want to be like the, the older people yeah, but you know, you you could have a model that the the pendulum swings to a certain point and then it starts to swing back, or it could be, you know, if things have shifted in a particular direction. The younger group is going to shift even further, and I, I'm not, I'm too clueless to know which of those two applies here. But maybe you have an opinion. I, you know, I I don't I don't think that it's. I mean, I think we've hit a wall. I, you know, and people like. Like one thing that really bothers, and I don't know if I'm taking us too far afield here, but like, like one thing that really bothers me is like when people say like, oh well, like if we've reached peak transgender, uh, you know, well like the next thing's gonna be like transracialism. Well, to me that that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, like that's not, that's just not gonna happen because we like, if anything, we've been transracialist, you know, for the whole entirety of our our country, you know, our country's history, like. We have this huge like tradition of people pretending to be Native American or pretending to be Italian or pretending to be Irish. Like there's just like trans transracialism, I feel like has like totally different like antecedents. And that's like that's not the next logical step, right? 
like the next logical step is, uh, you know, a lot of people when, you know, had irreversible body modifications and now they're realizing shit, it was irreversible. And I think the overturn window is shifted in such a way where it's always going to be okay and permissible and acceptable to be transgender, but we're going to be more prudent about like medical transition. And I think that's sort of like where that like, it's not going to be like, oh, great. Well, it's not cool to to get sexual reassignment surgery anymore. So people are just going to be Korean. You know what I mean? It's like ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't I don't have any good feel, but I, I agree with you that transracialism doesn't seem like the obvious. But next you, thing. People and people are like serious about this, right? Like they're they, you know, they, they, they really they, they mean it. They're like, well, that or like people are going to like identify as animals very seriously. Like it's just like. Like, what are you, the hell are you talking about? He's <laughs> like, it's absurd. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't, I mean, it'll make me sound bad, but I, I can't even think of what the net, you know, that if it continues rather than the, the pendulum swinging back the other way, if it continues uh, to get from my perspective, more and more an extreme, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine what the next thing will be. Like, you know, if a, a young child can tell you that they're actually different gender and then you surgically modify them and that becomes normative. I, I don't know what the next thing is beyond that. You know, just, uh, I can't imagine it. I guess it's, it's, it's a lack of imagination and, on my own part. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's interesting with, I, I don't think like we, we've seen a lot of different body mod trends, um, in our, both of us in our, in our lifetime. And they always get sort of like reversed, right? Like people, and you know, people dissolve their filler, they get their breast implants removed. Remember, like, for, like, a moment there, like, everyone had tattoos or, like, were gauges in their ears or, like, weird piercings. A lot of that, like, a lot of people are getting those things, like, reversed to, you know, whatever extent possible. What I think would be next is, like, instead of thinking, like, well, what body mods come, come next? I think it'd be more along the lines of, like, people just sort of becoming totally sedate and living completely online, not necessarily in, like... uh you know mark zuckerberg's metaverse but you know like the the like the lion's share of their interactions with other people just being like completely virtual like well, that that has accelerated i i agree with that take i well, coming back to incels i remember when joe rogan was not so big you know when he was just kind of starting out he used to he used to do ads from a company called fleshlight do you know what a fleshlight oh yeah uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah. And it's unbelievable because, you know, Joe Rogan is a very talented guy. So like the, the, the endorsements he did for the fleshlight were unbelievable because he, he's, you know, he said he had used it and I, I forgot what he would say. He would say things like it, it'll ring out the last bit of stuff from your memory, you know, um, how good it is. And, you know, of course I've never tried a fleshlight, but I believe that thing could actually work. And so therefore, like you hook that up to a porn VR rig. And, uh, you know, or, or maybe a sex robot or something. And yeah, I can imagine the incels really, you know, never leaving their room after that. It's it's so interesting because, like, people have been imagining that forever, right? And there's some people who, who have even, like, I don't, I don't remember if it was uh, Ray Kurzweil, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, or Mackenzie Warp, who was like, sex would be better if like we just disposed of our bodies completely and like did it virtually but i think a lot of insult incels are like kind of offended by that there's definitely like a population of them who believe it's kind of beautiful actually <laughs> in sort of this idea of like 
you know, the, like the anime waifu, like this, this transcendent beauty, like no human woman will ever be that good. And so they sort of dedicate themselves to like, you know, this idealized woman who's 2D. But, it's, I, but I do think a lot of them are offended by like robot sex or like with sex workers say, well, like, oh, well, you know, why do incels exist? You can just pay a sex worker. Like that is, I've seen a, like a lot of backlash to that. Yeah, I, I think uh, my comment about the fleshlight and, you know, virtual sex machine, I mean, sex machines, you know, being the next extension of porn, it's not really based on the thinking of like highly conceptual or intellectual kind of incel type people. It's more just like literally the male sex drive. Like if you, if you could find a way to alleviate your desire, like, you know, when you're eight, an 18 year old guy, like I, I can't even believe I was able to graduate from college because, you know, like most every three seconds or something when you're that age if you're a high testosterone guy you're just thinking about sex right so just being able to alleviate that through some kind of machine you know and with with like porn like streaming 3d porn streaming over your vr rig and then some fleshlight thing working i i can't believe i think it's mostly just like normative shame that you know you're just embarrassed to admit that you would do something like that or buy something like that but once the dam breaks just think you know, men being such animals, like uh, there's no stopping that technology from becoming widespread. I mean, you know, you have the like Tengu eggs for like disposable fleshlights. You have fleshlights. It's, I mean, why are the dam is sort of sort of broken already? Like guys will look at porn, but I, I there's there has to be some sort of like mental leap with these with like sex toys that I think like men must not, i mean i don't know i don't actually know well, any statistics like I, this nor have i discussed it with anyone i don't know where this is coming from but <laughs> well just it's, to clear just to clarify my point i'm not saying that men would prefer that kind of machinery not even them. like prefer but like like there like there isn't sort of i mean i guess there's this epidemic of people watching a lot of porn so maybe you do have a point yeah i mean what do you think they're doing while they're watching well, of course, right? Of yeah, course. it's oh, it's just a technology question of whether like the the basic equipment, like the basic old fashioned way of doing it, is better than the the what the technology can provide, right? Is the is the is the minimum minimum viable to use some Silicon Valley speak for you the the MVP, the minimum viable product? Is it out there yet? And has the customer overcome the social convention against buying the MVP? I mean, I think I that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I mean, why? Why do you? What do you think is stopping? I'm, I mean, I, I think vibrators for women are probably much more widespread than yeah, flashlights, right? Yeah, I mean, but what? What? What do you think causes it? Like, why don't more men have like sex dolls or like artificial vaginas or whatever? So I think the the vibrator question is a good example of sex positivity taking over because. I'm old enough to remember that a woman would be mortified if you knew that she had a vibrator. I mean, so am I. That that's like it's it's very it's very recent. Like I in my adulthood, that was still the case. Right, but now, well, yeah, maybe still it's not even cool quote cool to have one, but at least a lot of the right, like it's it's the, totally like it's 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 destigmatized for sure. Like I think it's less embarrassing. Right now, for men, like why isn't like more like high tech gear uh selling you know, for for men i mean maybe it's just the basic equipment of like just having like on demand crazy porn at all times coming off your phone or laptop and you know just using your basic equipment to do it is good enough and 
you know, how much better is it, you know, to use the fleshlight, despite what Joe Rogan said in his ad, in his endorsements. I think maybe that's it. Now, having an actual robot that looks like a woman, that that's that's uncanny valley type stuff. Because imagine your friends come over and there's this woman's this, you know, rubber woman sitting on your bed. Like I think that would just, you know, the 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 it's so far against the social convention and the amount of and, well even more than that like more than social convention it's like it that's its own sort of orientation at a certain point say say i didn't quite understand that say that again it's it's like a it's it's like you have to have like sustained attraction to like a woman-shaped silica like you know like the same with a fleshlight is like you could you, know, you close your eyes and imagine or like yeah. watch porn but like you're not like you have to be focused on the doll yeah no that's right yeah. And I mean, I think the, the ideal thing for men would be like you, you put on your VR goggles and then, you know, you have some device which is stimulating your sex organ, you know, basically so that the robot is not, I think, really necessarily the best thing. It also takes up too much space in your tiny apartment. Yeah. And yeah. You have to clean it. Yes, exactly. Okay. So we're about 90 minutes in, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just, let me let me run through a few things quickly and just get your thoughts on them and then then we can uh, bring it to a close. Now you you know you're on Twitter a fair amount and I think you already remarked that journalists kind of live on Twitter, maybe journalists are addicted to Twitter. I think Elon has some plans for and this was just in the news recently, like maybe making Twitter the primary source of news like replacing old media what what do you think about that i mean i think he i think it kind of already was that it was like an aggregator for a lot of people and then like you know at, at a minimum like journalists were sort of curating stories and to to some extent like readers were curating stories they're making things go viral and having them escape to different platforms or cable news like for example like i would have never been on tucker carlson without twitter Right. Like if my if 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 when I if my writing on mass shootings didn't go viral on Twitter, I would never escaped the internet ghetto. Right. <laughs> like, um, right. I, mean, I mean Twitter cuts across everything, right? I mean you can yeah. yeah I think Elon I mean I don't think Elon knows what he's doing with Twitter. It's it's kinda like it's, this here's how, broadly how I think of Elon Musk and Twitter. Like you go to someone's house, they make like tres leches or like some other dessert that seems very simple, but like actually you need to have a recipe and like do it correctly to make well. And you say to yourself, I could do that. <laughs> and then you go home and then you just completely fuck it up. Yep. I mean, that's it. like he's, it, I think he's killing Twitter and there's just, there's just no, he just doesn't understand the, how the site works. I don't know what will replace it or if we'll get a replacement ASAP. I, don't, I have no faith in any of these. Uh, you know, proposed replacements. What specifically is he doing wrong that's killing Twitter? I mean, like, first of all, it's just like broken, like just on a just very basic level. Like features are broken, and it the site does not the site never was perfect, but it it it's it's worse now. So that's probably two, like for, his downsizing, right? Like two throttling Substack, huge mistake because people people make their livelihoods on that, and they will. If if you have people who are really paying their bills off of Substack, they will re- go to the ends of the earth to make that work. They'll they'll become Twitch streamers. They'll go on TikTok. They will will blue sky into being. I mean, you know, 
The blue check thing, I actually think is very significant. As much as people complained about it, that hierarchy gave structure to the site. And I mean, like socially, I think it was, it was weirdly very healthy to have the us versus them. Uh, <laughs> right. Because it, it helps, it helps create these little, you know, communities, communities of blue checks, communities of people who aren't blue checks. And, you know, there's, there's just a laundry list of things he's been doing wrong. And I, you know, I also think he's he's been very petty, right? There's he's it's just it's just a recipe for disaster when it's already been been disastrous. I think yeah, I I think if journalists you know leave Twitter, that's that. Also, here's another thing: like the 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 anti journalist sentiment. That's great, Kfab. I also don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Kfab. But I I love it that you know what Kfab is. (laughs) You like. Not being a pro wrestling fan, I bet. Uh, not at all. But like, it's journalists have always kept social platforms alive, right? Um, like, with the exception of like, there's real niche communities. Like, unless there's like really like a lot of fandoms or something there. That's not that, like it's just there's so many things. I, I mean, again, at the risk of like rambling and just going off. I mean, it's just so, it's so much. Okay, let's leave Twitter and go to TikTok. Now, I have a couple of questions. One, I, I don't really get TikTok because I'm too old, although the algorithm is amazing. Like it, it, it is learning very fast what I want to see. And so that's the brilliance of it. How are people, how are 150 million Americans going to react if the Biden government cuts them off from TikTok because of some crazy theory about national security in China? I have no idea. It's going to be bad, though. I mean, it's just, it's maybe people just like move to Instagram reels, but like it's, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I myself and I, you know, I know I should be ashamed of this. I spend like six hours a day on TikTok, right? And like, I, and that number would be higher. Right? I wasn't an adult with responsibilities. And it, I mean, also like, I, you know, do, am I on TikTok that often because I write about it or like, am I trying to like monetize the way I sedate myself? You know what I mean? Like there's, I, but story is not unique, you know. A lot of people like I have no idea what but I you, even personally would do. But you're you're consuming TikTok. You're not a pre- you don't have a big TikTok presence, do you? No, I I I don't. But I think like people who are making money off of TikTok, I think will be very upset, and that'll yeah. be a problem. But I think also people who are consuming, it's like what would what would we do if like you know at the height of like if we got rid of Netflix or we or at the height of television, we're just like cable's done yeah, you know <laughs> like, I agree. but i i gotta ask you because i'm so clueless about tiktok like when when i'm on it most of the stuff it's giving me is very short each video like when you're on for six hours is it like in like 10 second segments or is there more long um, content that you're consuming there's, it, it goes up to three minutes but yeah i mean a lot of it's like the hours and hours of one 15 second to one minute that's videos cool. uh, okay that's awesome well, I got to tell you those, you know, it's so funny because, you know, I'm Asian American, so I'm I'm super sensitive to all the racism against Asians and stuff. And it's like, there's so much stuff about Asians can't invent stuff. Chinese people are not creative. And I'm like, my God, this, this fucking TikTok thing, like, is like enslaving, you know, like 150 million minds with its AI algorithms, right? Like, well, who invented that? Yeah, and I mean, like the whole the whole way. There's a great book writing the journalist because he's a the the guy who wrote it is just fantastic, and I'm I'm sad I've heard his name, but called the TikTok boom, and like 
TikTok is like a bunch of other apps that got acquired and turned into like a monster app. I mean, it was just like genius any way you slice it. Well, yeah, the parent company ByteDance is very experienced and yada, yada, you could go on. But as someone who knows a little bit about ML and AI, I, I can see what they're doing. Like they're basically, it is sensing what like, it's like kind of more complicated than A-B testing, but it's like, do you like the girls with the big boobs or do you like this or that? And it, it's figuring that out very fast from you. It's almost. I mean, I, to- I totally buy though that the, like there there's a lot of surveillance going on, like. Like, he, like, here's a, here's a great example. I went through a phase where I was just like, really, I, I, I went on a trip to the Middle East. I came back. I did, I got, I got a phone specifically for this trip, right? So there was no sort of contamination. This is like the interesting part. But I came back really kind of like interested in Islamic art. I bought a copy of the Quran, right? I talked about it a lot. I don't, I didn't necessarily like Google it though, right? When my TikTok is still stuck in the Islamic world. On a new song that wasn't with me. Interesting. But same account, right? Same TikTok account. No, I made a new account. Oh. On okay. a different, yeah, on a different phone. Like, it, I, like, I'd still, like, I'm so curious how it, like, you know, knew. Yeah. Another interesting thing is, like, these tarot card readings that are very popular. Anything, like, like, any social problems I talk about in my text messages, like, get reflected in, like, the psychic readings that come up on my free page. Like, they've got to be auditing. All sorts of stuff. You know, like, I, I, even if you don't create content, you might have accepted that you it has access to your microphone. And so it might it might learn a few things about what you discuss with your husband. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's it's definitely I don't know if it's if it could if there's like a keylogger, logger, it can see what I'm typed. Like, I, I don't know what it can see, but I actually don't mind it because like, it's great. Now I'm learning more. Well, it, it's it's aggressive, but you know, all I think internet platforms are aggressive about these things. And you know, the question, the main question, getting into like the more geopolitical stuff, is like, oh, is is that data leaking to the Chinese Communist Party, and are they going to suddenly take over American youth using this app? No, not probably not. But you know, of course, the company is trying to just monetize itself as as best it can. Right. Like, how much how much money could people make? I like forget you know geopolitical concerns like what about like corporations have something to sell <laughs> well yeah but that's that's the internet right that that's yeah that's what it's evolved into by the way i i i this is a whole different theme that is in your writing and discussions that i guess we don't have time to fully go into but you know i think you have a sense of the damage that technology and maybe specifically the internet is doing to people and i think on i heard you discussing with someone else like oh could it have evolved differently like or is it just this technology is so powerful and it's bound to like bring us to these social ills but you know the thing is in china they don't let the kids use tiktok the government is is actually controlling for quote the good of the people like the amount of porn that people can watch and the amount of time you can spend video gaming and stuff so so that's another model where you know whether you like it or not it is definitely a different model and the government is willing to take positions to limit the harm that new technologies can do to its people it's, hey, it's, I wish we, it's usually, I wish we did that. Yeah, exactly. It's usually portrayed in the West as like, oh, Chinese people have no freedom. It's a totalitarian government, et cetera. But a lot of the decisions they're making are not, have nothing to do with politics. They have to do with like, hey, it's damaging for people to, for young kids to be playing video games six hours a day. We're just not going to allow it to happen. And it's nothing to do with political issues. So, right. I mean, we have a real allergy to boundaries, I think. 
you're like I, I I'm considered to be a reactionary because I like this. I mean, this was the thing I kicked it off in a blog post. I mean, like real like slipshod blog post. It wasn't even. It wasn't like a studied piece or it wasn't reported. It was just like a couple of opinions on a page. Like maybe it's bad if you know, like, or maybe for some people it's bad for them to sleep with, you know, double digit number of partners right like very, like just very kind and that that was that was the exact opinion where people were like very quick to call me a reactionary and now i sort of have this thing that follows me that i have like these reactionary opinions but it's because it's like any boundary is just so threatening especially now yeah well that that harkens back to this debate that i lived through in graduate school where you know there were some feminists who were not as quote sex positive because they just felt like probably because they themselves felt that their own, you know, psyche wasn't strong enough to sleep with 30 guys or something, right. you know, and they just felt like, well, for me, that wouldn't be good. So there must be other women like me for whom that's not so good. And even though I'm uh, actually one of the intellectual leaders of feminism, I will argue against it because it's actually my opinion. But today you're not allowed to state that opinion. You're yeah. You're, I mean, I think, it, I think it's changing, but like two, three years ago, I mean, absolutely. You know, I, th- I think that I think that a lot of people are saying it, and a lot of people, you know, in all different from yeah. all different political perspectives. But I mean, you don't even have to say like, oh, you know, like the the percentage of women who would be damaged by having fifty partners is higher than the percentage of men who had fifty partners. You don't have to say that there's a gender difference. You can just say for some people, it just doesn't work. It's not good for them to have so many partners, right? And it's not even it's a gender neutral statement. But I think you're not allowed to say that because it's not sex positive these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think only well, my only amendment that you very recently could start saying it. Yeah, that's part of your prediction, right? That it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, next topic because I don't want to keep you too long. Adderall. I was amazed by this because Adderall is basically just speed, right? And or speed mixed with other stuff. And like, I think you said like all journalists or all professional class people of a certain age or not all but many are like taking Adderall all the time a lot of people are yeah that's amazing to me there was like the the increase in like Adderall prescriptions among like yuppie women was like I I don't remember the exact I mean it's it's over like 100 percent now when they go to the doc when they go to the doc are they saying hey doc I have ADHD give me an Adderall prescription or what do they say no, they they go to like pill mills, and I mean it was just so easy with telemedicine. But now, I mean now there's a shortage, so if you better like Ritalin, you know what I mean? They're not able to get enough of it from China or something. Okay, but you call the pill mill and you're like, eh, I don't feel very good. I need an I need an Adderall. They they, they they know it. They know it's up, and like uh, they go through like a checklist of symptoms, and you just gotta you have to say the magic. I see number of yeses. Okay. And so, like, if I'm like, if some New York Times journalist is interviewing me, like, tomorrow, there's a good shot that that lady is on Adderall while she's talking to me? No, well, not anymore. It's very hard to get. Well, but <laughs> not, not hard to get a prescription. Ago. It's hard to get the pill. Yeah. So, like, a year ago, yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, definitely not all, but a lot. Wow. Incredible. And, and like, do you get addicted? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's, it's speed. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like when I was growing up, this stuff was like a big no, no, like 
you know, you, you know, only like serious drug people would be taking this kind of stuff like speed. But then like you learn like in, oh, in World War II, they were like giving this out like candy to the soldiers, right? Before they went to battle and stuff like that. So, so we have a long history with these drugs, but, but I, I just happen to be in a generation where there wasn't that, as far as I know, there wasn't that much speed use. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes we're in a downer period. Sometimes we're in an upper period. Yeah. It's kind of weird that there's an actual shortage of the actual chemical. I mean, chemicals, I mean, you'd think they could, they could fix that supply chain problem, (laughs) but okay. Next topic, AI, GPT, what is the average person who makes a living writing, you know, journalist, substack person? Like, do you see this as a threat to your way of life or well-being? I mean, what, what, what do you think? No, because I'm, I, me and a lot, you know, a lot of other people, like I, like I said in the beginning, we're selling ourselves, like we're the product. Our, our writing is like, that's the, that's the charade. <laughs> I, right. I, I, yeah, I think it, based on what you explained about, you know, how you become big on Substack and stuff like that, I understand that now. But uh, how about just more generally, like the idea that, like, if you were one of these, I, I realize this era may be over, but if you were one of these 50 bucks an article clickbait people, would you be saying like, oh shit, an AI can now do that job better than me? You still need to find the the stories. Right. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, we'll we'll get there soon, but we're not there. We're not there yet. Okay. I don't even really think that like if for advertising. I mean, do you know you know who really is out of out of luck? I, like anything that's very formulaic, and uh, the community managers. Like there's a there's a a job where you basically just respond to people on social with like copy and pasted yep uh, stuff and that was very difficult because people you know people ask questions in weird ways and it's hard to know like the exact way to tweak it mm-hmm. that's something like gpt4 could you know we don't need to pay uh like 23 year olds thirty thousand dollars a year to, right. to tweet for us anymore by the way you earlier you you did say during that era when people were writing fifty dollars a pop clickbait pieces that to make a living, people had to be like a human writing mill. And I think just yeah. assist them once they picked out the topic and generating the text, you know, GPT would probably you know, be extremely useful. For some, for like listicles and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's probably right. As, or like fashion articles, but for these sort of like hot topic current events, one, it might be a little bit more difficult because the, you know, the other thing is like someone has to sort of start, like pick the next current thing, right? Yeah. That's, yep. that's that's part of it. So among among the people, your colleagues or peers that are writers, how many of them do you think are regularly using GPT on a day day to day basis? I think some of them, if you do like more uh, formulaic types of writing, I don't think many of them who do uh, like hot take or definitely not like confessional writing use it. I mean, the other thing you have to consider is like how many people are reading these articles. A lot of people are just sort of. You know, letting, a lot a lot of it's word vomit. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I don't know if I should blame this on the human writers or bots, but the the news feed that I get, if I'm not careful and I click on something and I start reading, I eventually I'll realize like either this was written by a bad robot or a human that's just really terrible at writing. Like, I, I can't believe this stuff is like published. Like, it's like they're not even, co- you know, there's some actual news there. And they're trying to summarize it, but they're not even really summarizing it in a coherent way. And there are lots of mistakes, like even like like paragraph breaks are in the wrong player. Maybe not that bad. 
But anyway, I'm like, I'm like, geez, this, this text feed is just really bad right now. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed anything like that. Oh, it's awful. It's, it's, it's the worst. Is that because the people writing these things suck or is it that they're using bad robots to write this stuff? I, I can't quite figure that it out. Depends on, it depends on, depends on what it is. But a lot of, I mean, a lot of people's writing just like doesn't get edited. There's like very few publications where I feel like supported as a writer. Um, and you know, I won't, I won't say which ones. So, you, you know, nobody can figure out it's not them by. Got it. Yes. I got it. Although I, I think GPT could probably edit these things pretty well. Like they could definitely improve. If I just fed that as a prompt and said, improve this, they would get something better. So they should. I don't they- know. I, I actually, I, I, you know, it's so funny you should mention this because I used it today for the first time for a piece. I wrote, supposed to file a 1300 word article and ended up 4,000 words. And I was like, I paid for G- uh, chat GPT plus. And I was like, you know, and then I was like, make this shorter. And I didn't like what I what I got out. I tried a couple of different times, a couple of different prompts, and it just didn't. I didn't love it. But I don't know. It might, that might be a problem with my writing. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's going to improve. It's still got a ways to go to make everybody happy. But the latest startup that I just founded is working with large language models, and believe me, there there is magic coming. It's it's going to touch almost every person, like even a few years in a, within the next couple of years. So, like your customer service and your Okay, that's another one. Like customers, I like I can imagine a potential universe where the customer and the customer service agent are both uh, AI. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have like tell your bot to go like sort this out. Like I got overcharged. Go get my twenty dollars back. Then it'll be bot versus bot. (laughs) Definitely, that that day is coming. Okay, last question, and I really thank you for your time, and it's been phenomenal talking to you. Um. What is stuff a Gen X guy just cannot get about younger people like millennials and Zoomers today? Like when, you, when you look at me, when you look when you look at me, you're like, hey, I'm going to talk to this old Gen X guy. Like, I'm pretty damn sure these are the things he's just not going to completely grok. Like, what what are those? Things? I don't I don't know because that's an interesting thing about the internet. Is that there are people in your age group who are like. Also, you know, very like they're maybe they're not digital natives, but they're very digitally savvy and they are very online. So it's like I think it's sort of a mistake to assume that like you might not understand something because of your age. That's a good answer. That's a good answer, because I, I would say, I, yeah, I am pretty online and most of the terminology used, I, I understand. I guess the maybe the right way to say it is that it's 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 quite likely that my sensibilities are different though, having grown up in a different era. So maybe that's, that I wouldn't be able to understand that's true. it. But, but think 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 about it. Like a lot of the big like vloggers and content creators are in your age bracket. Yeah, I mean the guys. I I don't know if you. Yeah, I guess they're baby big for people in your age group too. But yeah, I mean like the Tyler Cowens and the I don't know I don't know who I should mention, but. But yeah, I mean, they are, they, a lot of them are older for sure. Yeah. And across, you know, across the, the, the board, uh, Nina Power, Mary Harrington, those are two, uh, you know, writers who I really admire and who a lot of other women admire. I mean, you know, they're not super mainstream, but they're in their forties. And yeah, I, I think Curtis Yarvin is the elephant in the room. <laughs> He's also his late 40. I mean, so yeah, I think that your generation is what, I, kind of the architect in a lot of ways of people say you know poor forgotten gen x but you guys have a lot of big contributions 
Yeah, I, I, uh, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't singling out Gen X. It's just that I am Gen X. So that's, that's why I was mentioning. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I have high school aged kids and I remember when I was in high school, I was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I understand stuff. I understand what it's like to be 17. I, there's never going to be a generation gap between me and my kid. But now that I'm older, I realize, yeah, there's some, seems to be some generation gap because my, my, you know, there definitely seem to be things that like my kids consider like natural law of life that are incomprehensible to me. So somehow it happened. Somehow it happens in every generation. What are some things that you're, that like your kids bring to you that you just totally are just like, you're like, what, what are they talking about? The thing I don't get, well, I, I kind of get it. So at the risk of like revealing too much about my kids, but like one thing, okay, obviously their lives are very online. So like a lot of times I'll be asking like, Hey, do you want to go out? You, you want to go out and party or invite some friends over to sleep over whatever you want to do? Like I'm cool with it. You know, I'm that kind of dad. Right. And they're like, no, I'm going to sit in my room and we're just going to like talk to each other over my laptop. And I'm like, really? You're satisfied with that? Cause you could go and hang out. Like I would even like, if you want to have a beer, it's fine for me, you know, whatever. What? But they're like happy, just like interacting online. And that seems just really weird to me, but that that's maybe their world now. Does that seem normal to you? Yeah. Well, only because a lot of the people I want to talk to are online only. I don't, I don't know them in real life. Yeah. But in this case, like they go to a normal high school, they're on sports teams, you know, they have a lot of friends and I, I, like, you know, I guess I, guess I kind of get it because sometimes you just don't feel like going out. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your disposition. My kids would just tell me like, oh, dad, you know, these days, all your friendships, you know, you, you are mainly interacting online. That's the way you want to do it. To never want to do it in person though. I mean, COVID must have impacted them a lot. They were pretty lucky because it wasn't that bad, but they, they were home from school for a big chunk. They were online only for a chunk of time, but it wasn't that bad. They were lucky. They, they both had their swim seasons during COVID. They didn't cancel it. They just shortened. They didn't fully cancel the sports season, but it's just so different. Probably it was this more this way for you. But when I was in high school growing up in the middle of Iowa, we were just like raging on weekends. <laughs> we would go out like if anybody's parents were away. For sure, there was some monster party happening at their house and like kegs of beer and just people like doing crazy stuff. It was it was literally like an 80s high school movie. I don't know if you ever watched any of those, but, you know, oh, yeah, that was that was my teen life. And my kids don't seem to have experienced any of that. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I I, I didn't necessarily experience that, but it was sort of like, you know, that was sort of like the goal. Yeah, I mean, we lived in a I grew up in a college town and, you know, it was very safe. And there was one high school, so all the kids knew each other, and it was just it was just crazy. And there was tons of drinking and and driving and racing cars and just fights. There were fights all the time. My kids tell me they've only seen like I was questioning about this, and my my kids told me they'd only seen in their entire lives they'd saw one fight at the bus stop, and other than that, they've never seen any fights at school. Whereas I think there was like a fight every week at my school. <laughs> Not that it was a bad high school; it was like a normal, pretty much all white high school in the middle of Iowa, but there were fights because, you know, kids are kids. Yeah. I, I never saw fights either growing. Well, I might've been, I went to a private school. I mean, there's a lot of different components to that, but I, yeah, I remember thinking like fights were just something that happened in movies, but also 
you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about school shootings, which I'm sure your kids have had drills. I mean, I was I, I did drills growing up. We yeah, we had a actual a hoax called in, which scared the heck out of everybody a few months ago. But yeah, to me, it would have been totally out of the question to think that somebody would come into my high school and shoot it up. So totally different. Yeah. Well, Catherine, it's been great. I uh, appreciate your time. We'd love to have you back on the podcast some other time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, wish you all the best.